It's a delight and an honor to introduce to you Joe Shulam. Some of you got to hear him a few years ago, but he's back and we're grateful for that. I was Joe's student in 1987 and we've been friends ever since. Uh, Joe was born in Jerusalem, a secular Jewish family. Uh, he didn't grow up going to synagogue. He uh, thought he knew about Christianity because in high school he uh, was assigned the Gospel of John in a class to read. And so he read about John, he read through John and thought he understood Jesus, but then he also thought whenever he read John that that wasn't what he thought Christianity was all about. And so he met some missionaries uh, in high school, and uh, he had taught one of the missionary sons how to smoke and got in trouble. And, uh, and the missionary asked Joe, what are you going to do about the resurrection? And that was a pivotal moment in Joe's life as he began to wrestle with that for some time. Uh, he decided to give his life to Yeshua as his Messiah, uh, was uh, baptized, and not long after that, uh, he had to leave the country. And so he finished high school in Valdosta, Georgia. He went back to Israel and got a degree in chemistry. Then he came back to the United States. He went to Lipscomb University, where Mark went, studied with Harvey Floyd, and uh, got a degree in New Testament. He then went back to Israel to start a Messianic Jewish church and a movement called Nativia. Uh, Nativia is a Jewish uh, group of Messianic Christians that are impacting the world for Christ. And uh, Joe in Israel has um, a degree from Hebrew University in archeology. span He has also been fully trained in rabbinics at a rabbinic school in Jerusalem. Uh, Joe speaks seven languages. He travels around the world uh, telling people about Christ. Uh, he's been in over 20 countries this year, and he won't stop because uh, Joe, more than anyone I've ever met, uh, personifies what it looks like to be an evangelist for Jesus. And so I'm excited that he's here tonight. I'm looking forward to his message about Jesus in the Talmud. And I think also as he uh, shares with us some of what uh, God is doing in Jerusalem that I think will warm your heart. So in Hebrew, you say Erev Tov. Can you say that? Erev Tov. And with that, we'll welcome Joe and uh, look forward to a great night. Shalom. Shalom. I'm thankful to God for the opportunity again to be here in the Lanier Theological Library. I thank Mark and Becky and uh, Charles and all the staff that have made this possible. Thank uh, Scott Sager for the introduction and thank God that it was short. <laughs> what I uh, decided to teach this evening is unusual for Christians and it's even unusual for Jews because it's material from the rabbinical texts of the Babylonian Talmud. And why would I want to teach Christians this lesson? Because all truth, if it is not substantiated, it's a myth. Truth has to be substantiated on witnesses, on facts, on archaeology, on uh, a lot of different kinds of material that make it believable. 
Now, one of the things that makes people, you know, believable is if they have enemies. If they don't have enemies, they're not so believable. So, through the enemies of the gospel, so to speak, we can learn a lot about the biblical truth. And I was going to use polemic texts, but my good friend uh, Scott Sager said, make it more inspirational. So that's what I, I listened to my friend and my student, and I decided to use material that is inspirational from the rabbinical texts. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to have three examples from the rabbinical texts of great teachers and great people who became disciples of Jesus, and it's recorded in the Talmud, in the rabbinical texts. The Talmud is a collection of rabbinical arguments. In America, you've got football and basketball as your national sports. In Israel and among the Jews, arguing is our national sport. <laughs> and we're good at it. And so I am going to start with a text that uh, ties together the New Testament and the rabbinical text and Josephus and other historical texts in order to show you how important it is for us to look at the background of what was happening in the first century among the community of the Jewish disciples of Yeshua with the Pharisaic Jewish uh, synagogue and communities. So here we have a text, a text taken from the Talmud, from a tractate called Chagiga, page 16a. Now, the way that the rabbis deal with their enemies is very simple. They delete everything about them. So they don't exist. But sometimes they forget to delete something. And in this case, they forgot to delete a character named Menachem. And this text in the Talmud, it says, Hillel and Menachem did not differ. Menachem went forth, Shammai entered. That's all we have in the Talmud about this character, Menachem. But Hillel was the head of the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin always had a pair of men at its head, because you can't be a, a, a judge in a Supreme Court by yourself. You have to have a balance, another judge that will balance you out if you disagree with you, and that way make justice more visible. So Hillel and Menachem were the Supreme Court judges in, before the birth of, of, of Jesus in Jerusalem in the Sanhedrin. And it, all it says is Menachem went out and Shammai entered in his place. Hillel and Shammai became a very well-known rabbinical couple at that Supreme Court of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. So all, that's all we have. The only mention of Menachem in 
the whole Talmud, which is a, a library of itself, it'll easily fill uh, two normal shelves in your library, one set of the Talmud. Would be 30, 40 volumes, easily. And all you have a mention of this character, Menachem, is in this one text. That's interesting. So who is this Menachem? Is spelled differently in different uh, English versions. We find in Josephus, the famous historian that was adopted by the Flavian family of, of Caesars, uh, Vespasian, and then his son Titus, the one who destroyed Jerusalem. They adopted Josephus, who was a, a, a Jewish general in the Galilee, and he lost the battle and he was, became a slave, and they adopted him. And that's why he's called Josephus Flavius. His Hebrew name is Yosef ben Matityahu, Joseph the son of Matthew. But when he was adopted by the Caesars of the Flavian family, he became Josephus Flavius. So in the Antiquities of the Jews, book 15, line 10, verse 5, it says this. Now there was one of these, the, 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 it should say heretics, but Essenes, the Hebrew word is Amin, heretic, whose name was Menachem, who had this testimony that he had not only conducted his life after an excellent manner, but had the foreknowledge of future events given to him by God also. This man once saw Herod when he was a child and going to school and saluted him King of the Jews. But he thinking that either he did not know him or that he was in jest, put him in mind that he was but a private man. But Menachem smiled to himself and clapped him on his backside with his hand. In America today, he'd go to jail. <laughs> Slapped him on his backside with his hand, and said, however that be, thou wilt be king and will be, begin thy reign happily, for God finds thee worthy of it. And do thou remember the blows that Menachem had given thee as being a sign of the change of thy fortune. So that's a te historical text in a very highly respected Jewish historian in the first century. And, and so we have a mention of Menachem in the Talmud, a very short mention. Menachem went out and Shammai took his place. And now we have this text in Josephus about the same Menachem who was a friend of Herod during childhood. So we know now, what do we know about Menachem? We know about Menachem that Menachem was had a prophetic gift, that he was a friend of Herod during childhood, and that he predicted that Herod will become the king, and that he lived an excellent manner, in other words, a, a, devout, a, a devout manner. Now, this is what we know about Menachem. He was the head of the Sanhedrin, he had a prophetic gift. He was an excellent man, an honorable man, considered a prophet. 
Now we go to a few hundred years later, the rabbis are discussing the earlier text that we read from the Talmud, from the Mishnah. Menachem went forth and Shammai entered. Now the rabbis have to discuss what does it mean? Where did he go? Abaye, a rabbi that lived in the third and beginning of the fourth century, says he went forth into evil courses. The word that is used in Hebrew here means he became a Christian. That's what it means. Rabbah, who is Abaye's friend and, and his kind of sparring partner, said no, he went forth in the king's service. Thus it was also taught, Menachem went forth to the king's service, and there went with him 80 pairs of disciples dressed in silk. Okay, that's, that is a discussion on the earlier text between two rabbis that lived at the end of the third century. In other words, wherever Menachem went, he didn't go alone. He took 160 rabbinical disciples with him, and they were all dressed in silk. In other words, they all did well in the stock market. <laughs> that, that's what it essentially means. Now we're reading in the book of Acts. Now in the church that was in, at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius the Cyrenian, and Menahem, who had been bought, brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Oh, that's in the New Testament. And I imagine every pastor and every Christian read the book of Acts at least once in their lifetime. And they didn't stop to ask themselves, who are these men who are the leaders of the church in Antioch? Antioch is the first place that the disciples of Jesus were called Christians. And here is a text that says, who were the leaders of that church? Among the leaders of that church, we find a guy named Menachem, same name, and we, what do we know about him? That he was a prophet, and a teacher of the law, and a friend of Herod. So we have three of the ingredients that we find in the Talmudic discussion by the rabbis. In the book of Acts, the name of the man is Menachem. He is a prophet. He is a great teacher of the Torah, of God's word. And he was a friend of Herod. No coincidence. Now what does that mean? The, the, the popular idea of the Jewish people is that only idiots, ignorant Jews, uneducated Jews, secular Jews become disciples of Jesus. That's the common view of most of the Jews in the world, even until this very day. If you are a real educated Jew, 
and you knew the law of Moses and the Torah, you would never become a Christian. You would never accept Jesus as the Messiah. That's the common view. But here we find out that a guy who was this, the, at the head of the Sanhedrin, the head of the Supreme Court, a guy by the name of Menachem, left the normative, regular, pharisaic Jewish community and went out. And that the rabbis discussed, where did he go? One of the rabbis, Abaye, said he became a heretic. And another of the rabbis said, no, he went to the service of the king with 80 pairs of disciples dressed in silk. Is it the same man? I propose to you it's the same man. Why is it the same man? The name is the same. Friend of Herod during childhood. A prophet and a great teacher of the Torah. There's nobody else that explains. And, and Rabbah, the great rabbi in the, in the, in the third century, early third, third century, says he went in the service of the king. Which king? He doesn't say. But since the other rabbis say he went into an evil culture, or, uh, became a, a Christian in other words, the only king that you could imagine that he went to serve was the king of the Jews. He wasn't the king of the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Catholics <laughs> and the Pentecostals. He was the king of the Jews and remained the king of the Jews. And this rabbi, Rabbah, was one of the great Talmudic rabbis, says he went in the service of the king. So what, is, what does this show us? First of all, it shows us that inside the Talmudic text that usually criticizes Christians and criticizes Jesus and talks about his birth and his death and his teaching was so attractive to the judge of the Supreme Court of the Jewish people in the Sanhedrin that he left his high position and went out and took with him 180 disciples. 160 disciples. My math is bad. Even though I studied chemistry. 160 disciples, successful Jews, to follow him and become one of the leaders of the church in Antioch. I think that this is a tremendous encouragement, especially to Jews who believe in Jesus. Like myself and like others that we have here in the crowd. Yeah. And this we learn from the texts that are supposed to be polemicizing against Jesus. Against the disciples of Jesus. So this is a very interesting case. And it's the first case that I want to propose to you. That this Talmudic rabbi, that the, the, the Pharisaic leaders tried to delete from history and only left one sliver, one short verse, 
Hillel and Menachem dis, were not in disagreement. And Menachem left and went out to a bad culture. From that one text, we connected with the book of Acts. And we see that this Menachem did become a disciple and a leader in the church in Antioch. Same Menachem. That's the first case that I want to bring before you. Okay, we did the book of Acts. Now, in summary, Menachem had a high position. People in high position, successful people, like a Supreme Court judge, don't easily give up the perks of their life and become anathema to their community. Right? But who was the Apostle Paul? I didn't make a, sli a slide of that. The Apostle Paul was the Attorney General of the Supreme Court in Jerusalem. And the fact that the people put their coats at his feet was because he could use the coats to sign either stay the execution of Stephen or go ahead with it. The reason that they had to put the coat there because he, the, the only way that he could sign to the execution to go on or stop but by the way he was waving one of those coats because they didn't have cell phones. <laughs> had they had cell phones, they would have called him and say, stop, we have a new evidence. Somebody brought new evidence at the court. And that's also from the Talmud. Now, the next case. Very, very famous rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer, was arrested for minut. Minut means heresy. And in that time, heresy is only one following Jesus. Was arrested for minut. And brought before the Roman tribune to be judged. Said the governor to him, the tribune, how can a sage, an old man like you, occupy himself with this kind of idle things? He replied, I acknowledge the judge as right. The governor thought that he was referred to him, though he had really referred to the Father in heaven and said, because you have given me this compliment, acknowledge me as right, I pardon you. Thou art acquitted. So here you have Rabbi Eliezer, one of the great rabbis of his time, that lived in the beginning of the second century. And he is brought before the Roman judge. It's during the reign of Trajan, Caesar Trajan, Trianus. And is brought before the Roman tribune and accused of having joined a heresy. Those of you who know history well know that the governor of Asia Minor, Pliny, had written to Trajan to Rome, uh, three letters, exchanged three times letters with Trajan, and said, what shall I do about these Christians? You know, they, they are 
haters of humanity. Why are the Christians haters of humanity? Because they wouldn't let their daughters marry pagans. And they wouldn't let their sons marry pagan women. Why? And they were cannibals. Why cannibals? Because they heard them take communion. The Eucharist. And they heard them talking about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Messiah. And they didn't know what was going on, so they interpreted it as cannibalism. And uh, they were atheists, was Pliny's third accusation. Why were they atheists? Because they believed in a God that had no statue and no temple. And, uh, and uh, it was unknown, the way Paul said it to the Athenians a lot earlier. And so Trajan writes him in the first letter, says, you know what, get rid of them. If they bother you, feed them to the lions, put them in the Colosseum, do whatever you want to with them. So during that period, this very famous rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer, who could have been Paul's nephew from Acts chapter 23, where his nephew was a part of the a terrorist group, Jewish terrorist group, right-wing terrorist group, that decided not to eat or not to drink until they killed Paul. And then his nephew, who was a part of that group, tells the Roman when Paul was imprisoned in the, in the fortress Antonia next to the temple, and they take Paul by horse during the night and speed him out from Jerusalem to Caesarea by the sea. So this may be the same Rabbi Eliezer. So he is accused of becoming a Christian. And the judge pardons him because he said, I trust the judge and his righteousness, that he'd be a righteous judge. The judge, the Roman tribune thinks that he's talking about him, but he actually talked about our Heavenly Father as being the righteous judge. He misunderstood, but Rabbi Eliezer gained by that and was pardoned. When he came home to his disciples, called him, called on him and to the counsel him, but when but he would accept no consolation. Rabbi Akiva, who was a Gentile who converted to Judaism, says, Master, will thou permit me to say one thing of what thou hast taught me? He replied, Say it, Master. Said he perhaps some of the teaching of the minim, meaning of, of the Jewish Christians, had been transmitted to thee, and thou didst approve of it, and because of that thou was arrested. He exclaimed, Akiva, thou hast reminded me. I was once walking in the upper market of Sepphoris, next to Nazareth, when I came across one of the disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, Jacob of the village of Pharshania, by name, who said to me, it is written in your Torah that thou should not bring the hire of a harlot or the price of a dog into the house of the Lord thy God. What is he talking about? In the Torah, we have two contradictory precepts. 
One of the precepts is that everybody in Israel should give his 10%, his tithe to the temple. Everybody. says so all Israel. And then in another one of the books of the Torah, it says you shall not receive the hire of a harlot or the price of a dog. You know, if you have a dog and you sold your dog, you don't have to give a tithe from that money. Or if you're a harlot and you receive money for sex, you cannot tithe from that money because it's unclean money. So you have two contradictory laws in the Torah. One says everybody should tithe. The other one says there are two exceptions, the price of a dog and the hire of a harlot. So this Jacob, who was a disciple of Jesus, asks the rabbi, you know, how do you resolve this seeming contradiction? And Rabbi Eliezer has no answer to resolve this contradiction. So Jacob offers an answer. Thus I was taught by, by Jesus the Nazarene, from the hire of a harlot thou shalt gather them, and unto the hire of a harlot thou shalt return them. It's a verse. They came from the place of filth, filth, let them go to the place of filth. Those words pleased me so very much, says Rabbi Eliezer, that I, that I, I, that is what, that is why I was arrested for apostasy, and thereby I transgressed the scriptural words, remove thy, remove thy way from, far from her, which refers to the, to the minute, to the to faith in Christianity, to the heresy, and come not nigh to the door of her house, which refers to the ruling power. That's one text. There is a parallel text in the Talmud that says more or less the same thing. And what do we have here? We have here a very, very famous rabbi who meets a disciple of Jesus in the marketplace in Sepphoris that is only about three and a half miles away from Nazareth, and it was the capital of the Galilee at that time. And uh, he's asked a halachic question, a, a, a question about the law of Moses, how do you resolve this seeming contradiction? And this disciple of Jesus answers the famous rabbi. The rabbi gets so impressed that he becomes a believer. Becomes a believer in Jesus. And then the Roman authorities hear about that and they take him to court before the tribune. It's not something that happened you know, in a minute and immediately he realized that. No, he went home and taught that to his disciples, what he learned from Jesus through his disciple named Jacob. And apparently he was doing it long enough till the authorities of the Roman governor heard about it. And he was invited to court and taken to court and judged and dismissed because the judge misunderstood the compliment that he gave God, he took for himself. So here you have a second case of a very, very famous 
rabbi that is impressed by the teaching of Jesus, that transmitted to him by a disciple of Jesus from the village of Schania in the Galilee, also not far from Nazareth, and impressed enough to share that teaching with his disciples enough to impress the Roman governor that he became a heretic and broke the Roman law and joined the new religion and was judged for it. What impressed him? The teaching of Jesus. And this is something that, that today every Christian should inhale, take it in, because we all believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We believe that he's the Son of God. We believe that he's divine. We believe that he will return and he will, you know, judge the world and humanity one day. Right? But what was his main role during his lifetime? His main role that he was a rabbi. He's called a rabbi 16 times in the Gospels. His enemies called him a rabbi. And his disciples called him a rabbi. What does it mean a rabbi? That he was a teacher of life. The statistics are, folks, that only 10% of evangelical pulpits teach from the gospel. 10% of all the sermons are from the teaching of Jesus. 10% from the rest of the epistles and of Revelation, 10 more percent. And 10% from the whole Old Testament. 70% of the preaching in evangelical churches comes from the letters of Paul, which were written mainly to Gentiles. And talk about love and grace and all these wonderful things, very important things. But the four Gospels, only 10% of the teaching. Why? Because we don't want Jesus as our rabbi, as our teacher, because he's a very hard teacher. He tells you if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. If you come late to my party, go out into art of darkness. If you're not dressed right, cast him out. Right? We don't want that. We all want love and grace and St. Valentine's Day. <laughs> That's what we want. Jesus is popular as long as he's hanging on the cross. But if you take Jesus off the cross, he may kick your rear end. And that's why people don't like so much the teaching of Jesus. But this Rabbi Eliezer is so impressed by the teaching of Jesus that he becomes a disciple of Jesus and is taken to the Roman court. It's an interesting case. My time is getting short. There's one more case that I want to share with you. 
also from the Talmud, no man should have any dealing with the minim, in other words, the Jewish disciples of Jesus, the heretics. Nor is it allowed to be healed by them, even in risking an hour's life. It once happened that Ben Dama, the son of Rabbi Ishmael, sister, that he was bitten by a serpent, and Jacob, a native of Farshania, the same Jacob that was with Rabbi Eliezer, Jacob, a native of Farshania, came to heal him, but Rabbi Ishmael did not let him, whereupon Ben Dama said, my brother, Rabbi Ishmael, let him, so that I may be healed by him. I will even cite a verse from the Torah that he is to be permitted, permitted to heal him. But he did not manage to complete his saying when his soul departed and he died. Wherever, whereupon Rabbi Ishmael exclaimed, Happy art thou Ben Dama, for thou wert pure in body and thy soul likewise left thee in purity. Nor hast thou transgressed the words of, the, of thy colleagues who said, he who breaketh through a fence, a serpent shall bite him. It is different with the teaching of the minim, for it, is, it, draws, for it draws and one having dealing with them may be drawn after them. An interesting situation. This Bendama, a rabbi, is bitten by a poisonous snake. And he wants to call the disciple of Jesus, Jacob, yeah. to come and pray for him and heal him in the name of Jesus. Rabbi Ishmael doesn't want to allow him to call this Jacob, disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, to heal him. Now, that's an interesting situation. Why would Ben Dama ask for this Jacob to come and pray for him in the name of Jesus? Because he probably already had a backlog. He had a reputation of being able to heal people, praying for them in the name of Jesus. Otherwise, they wouldn't chance to call a guy who was known as a heretic to come and pray for him. It's not like the television evangelists. <laughs> Here is like Peter and John who went to the temple and they said, silver and gold we don't have, but what we have we'll give you. Get up and walk, they said to the layman at the golden gate in the temple. There was no maybe to it. They had a gift from God, from the Holy Spirit, and they knew that that gift works. It wasn't fake. It was real. And this Jacob had that kind of reputation. But Rabbi Ishmael is objecting to bring Jacob and to pray for Ben Dama in the name of Jesus. 
because he suspects that if he prays for him in the name of Jesus, he will be healed. But Ben Dama dies from the bite of the snake, poisonous snake, before he is able to call Jacob from Scania to pray for him. And Rabbi Ishmael blesses him and says, you are blessed that you died before they prayed for you in the name of Jesus to be healed. Okay, this is another case. I have more, but my time is up. But I want to just summarize here. We are seeing an interesting relationship between the community of the believers, in Jewish believers in Jesus, and the rabbinical community. Some of the great rabbis become disciples. Do I have more time, Charles? Yes. Okay. <laughs> then I'll go to the next case. The next case is even more interesting than this. <laughs> okay. I'll do it in six minutes. There are four very famous Jewish rabbis before the year 125. Another very beginning of the second century. And they have a spiritual experience of ascension to heaven. Like Paul had in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Paul says, I knew a man who was caught up in the third heaven and so forth and so on. A similar experience. Three of the disciples and their teacher. Their teacher is called Elisha, the son of Abuya. And they have this ascension experience. One misunderstands what he sees and he lies in heaven. He dies. Another one, nothing happens to him. This Gentile convert, Rabbi Akiva, nothing happens to him. He comes out clear. Elisha ben Abuya comes down and, he, and they changed his name. They called him, he changed, he, he became different, Acher in Hebrew. He became Acher. He changed. Whatever he saw in heaven, he changed. And to make, because I only have six minutes, what happens when, they, when he comes out of that mystical experience, he no longer respects the rabbinical interpretations of the law. He gets on a horse, he rides a horse on Shabbat, he doesn't observe the Sabbath, a limit uh, that, that is rabbinical essentially and uh, essentially Elisha ben Abuya becomes a mean becomes a, a disciple of Jesus what made what did he see up there that made him become a disciple of Jesus he saw a man sitting on the right hand of God. And before God, nobody sits. Even the archangels stand in the presence of God. But Elisha ben Abuya saw a man sitting at the right hand of God. That convinced him to become a disciple of Jesus. 
Now imagine this. We have the story of the crucifixion. We have the story of the resurrection. And we have the comments in the Revelation about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. Right? And here you have a, a, a very famous teacher who was the teacher of the other three that went up with him. Seeing a man sitting at the right hand of God that changes his life. He gives up his position as a great rabbi. As a teacher of the Torah. Gambles everything away of his life, like the Apostle Paul, in order to become a disciple of Jesus. So what does that tell us? First of all, that not only idiots and ignoramuses become disciples of Jesus. <laughs> it's an important point. That that's true until this very day. In every community you have some ignorant and ignoramuses. Yeah. But then and now, God chooses any man of any social standard in any position in the community. And those who say yes to God change. Like Elisha ben Abuya changed, and his name in the Talmud no longer is called Elisha ben Abuya, it's called. Acher, the guy that became different. And he became different, praise God. <laughs> and we can all become different. And some of us have to give up position and father and mother and honor and respect in order to follow Jesus. And nothing has changed from the time of the apostles until this day. We all still have to give up sometimes our position, our honor, our family, in order to follow Jesus. And I was lucky enough, I gave it up when I was 16, but when I was 21, my parents, my sister, my nephews, all became disciples of Jesus. God bless you. Thank you. Okay, I'm assuming this is uh, reference to non-Messianic rabbis. It says, how do rabbinic scholars handle Isaiah 53? Easy. <laughs> Jewish rabbis are masters in handling anything. <laughs> and there's only very few rabbis that uh, have confessed that Isaiah 53 is talking about the Messiah. The other rabbis, starting from about the 12th century, say it's talking about the nation of Israel. We are the servants of God as a nation. But uh, uh, Mark is a lawyer, he could tell you it doesn't fit. Because if we are the people who suffered for the salvation of the world, then who was the person that was rejected and despised and by whose stripes we were healed? Yeah. 
We can't be the ones who are receiving the stripes and then healing ourselves. <laughs> yeah? So that, that's the case, but, but if you read rabbinical commentaries, they find a way. They find a way to describe that there are chickens that lay square eggs. <laughs> you think I'm joking, but I'm not. <laughs> They're easier to pack. Well, that is a nice lead into this next question. <laughs> How has your understanding in science and chemistry affected your belief and faith in God? It affected my, the way I read the Bible. That's how it affected me. Because since I was a, a child, every toy I got, I had to take apart to find out how it works. And that's how I discovered that this Menachem from Acts 13 is the same Menachem that is mentioned only one time in the Mishnah and only one time in the Talmud and in Josephus. It's because, you know, I, I, I doubt everything. I have a hard time believing anybody. But when I believe, I stay with it until the end. Do you have an opinion about what Paul meant in Romans 9 through 11 when he spoke about making my people, Jewish people, jealous? Yes. I have not only an opinion, I have experience of many years of what the Gentiles should do to make the Jewish people jealous. First of all, they should believe in God more than we as Jews believe in God. Not in religion. Religion is the big, all religion, Judaism, Christianity, every religion in the world is the biggest enemy of faith. Yeah? Religion has brought division and war and hatred to humanity. Faith, love, hope, those are powers, powers for life. And uh, Gentiles should show their love to the Jewish people. We have been, you know, more than a thousand years, a thousand four hundred years, and a little, even a little more, receiving hate in the name of Jesus, anti-Semitism in the name of Jesus. It came from Christians. Muslims were a lot more tolerant toward Judaism and toward the Jews than Christians were. We have been walking the Via Dolorosa for sixteen hundred years. All in the name of Jesus. That's why my parents, who were good people, kicked me out. Because when I believed in Jesus and the day I was baptized, they thought I joined the enemy. Yeah? So the first thing, you can't make the Jews jealous with your money. They do better than you do. <laughs> by average. You can't make the Jews jealous with your academia. The percentage of Jews that receive Nobel Prizes is higher than any other ethnic group. You can check it out and you'll see that I'm right. 
The only thing way you can make the Jews jealous is if you love their God, their Bible, their Messiah more than they do. And if you support Jewish causes with a sincere heart and with pure motives and generously, of course, obeying the, the command of the Apostle Paul, first of all, to the household of God. That means to the Jewish believers. And then to the state of Israel, to the UJA, to uh, the Fund for Lone Soldiers. You know, we have now, you know, John Hagee. We have the Christian Embassy in Jerusalem that don't preach the gospel and just support Orthodox Jewish causes, which is good. It's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. But it's a better thing for you to support your brothers and sisters who are preaching the gospel, who are feeding the poor, who are doing good works, humanitarian works, with the name of our Savior in the middle. That's the way to make the Jews jealous. Okay. Um, do you have an opinion on Paul's views on dietary laws? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Would... I suspect the follow-up is, would you don't, share that, Mark, please? Don't ask a Jew if he has an opinion about anything. <laughs> we have opinion about everything. <laughs> uh, would you share your opinion on that one, please? Yeah. Well, actually, you're a lawyer. I want you to read a text. The most famous text that all Christian theologians think that it permits them to eat anything they want. Okay? I'll give you the text here. Oh, you've got it your own? I happen to First Timothy chapter 4, read from verse 3 through 4 or 5. First Timothy. Three, verse 3 and 4. Let's try that. Okay, okay, okay. Read it aloud. Okay, okay, okay. As a lawyer, not as a believer. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And 4. Which language? In any language you want. <laughs> I will tell you, Rabbi Joe and I had the same Greek professor, <laughs> though we were apart by a couple of years. <laughs> um, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Does this text say you can eat anything, or does it limit you? Uh, this text does not say you can eat anything, and it does not limit you. Neither. It, it limits you. I don't think If it you can say, thank you, God, for this pork chop, and if it is according to the word and prayer, then you can eat it. But if, you, if God said, don't do it, can you say, God, thank you, God, for letting me do it? Okay, I can argue that with you. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, I think you make a valid point, um, uh, but my question would be, I think the question of this person would be, but do we follow the Old Testament law that says not to eat it? As a Gentile, we have caveats in Romans 14. And in Colossians 2.16, that say, don't judge one another 
concerning these things, what you eat or what you drink or which holidays you keep or don't, right? Right. So we don't have to judge. You want to eat? I'm not going to look at your plate what you ate or didn't eat. You want to celebrate? I'm not going to tell you which holiday to celebrate or not to celebrate. We're not supposed to judge. That doesn't mean that it's okay. Not judging doesn't mean that it's okay. Because the apostles told the Gentiles in Acts chapter 15, verse 21, they said, let, after they said these four things you have to, you must observe, which most Christians and churches don't teach, that you cannot eat meat that is not USDA. Only USDA you can eat, because USDA is slaughtered in a kosher way. And uh, not eat blood, okay? And then it says, tell those Gentiles to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and hear the word of the Lord, the, word, the, the Torah being read. Because they understood that the Gentiles, it takes them longer to learn than the Jews. <laughs> <laughs> and so they, they have to go every Shabbat to the synagogue and hear the word of God read and hopefully the Holy Spirit will filter through after a while and they'll understand that God gave us wise instructions uh, when he gave us these dietary laws it's not because they taste bad they taste good I ate pork and shrimp and lobster all of my childhood, well till after I became a Christian. But suddenly, I read that text in 1 Timothy, and I understood. I can't tell God, thank you, for some, but something he told me not to do. So, since the national sport of Israel is arguing, yes, <laughs> can I argue? Sure. Acts chapter 10, Peter's up on the housetop about right, to pray. And he becomes hungry and wants something to eat. While they're preparing food, he falls into a trance. The heavens open and a great sheet descends. And in it are all kinds of animals, reptiles and birds. A voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter says, by no means, Lord, I've not eaten anything that's common or unclean or not USDA. And the voice came to him a second time and said, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. Good. Then the next chapter, Peter interprets the vision that he saw. And he says, now I understand what that vision meant, that God has made no man unclean. That every man that says, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu, will be saved. Calling upon the name of the Lord, that's what it means. Translated to Hebrew, Kriyachma, calling the holy name. Except the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator of the world, as your God, you can be saved. That's what the mission, because he didn't, in a vision, you can have sex with Marilyn Monroe after her death. In a vision. Vision not, is not a reality. No, my wife won't let me. <laughs> Peter, Peter didn't kill anything that he saw in a vision. He didn't even have his knife with him. 
He was a rabbi without a knife. Well, I would go further to say that uh, <laughs> as an advocate of my own position on this, Peter then uh, goes out among the Gentiles and lives like a Gentile in Galatians 2. It seems to be a pretty clear reference to the food he was eating. Not even necessarily though, to the company he was keeping. Uh, if, no, it says if you live like a Gentile, not live with a Gentile. Live like a Gentile and not a Jew. Yeah. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Well, even if I give in to this, because your wife is here, I have to be nice to you. <laughs> even, even if I give in to you on this case, yeah, it's not a sin to eat pork. Well, I will tell you. Even for a Jew, it's not a sin. I will tell you that my first Hebrew teacher was named Tuvia Klein. Yeah. Orthodox from South Africa. Yeah. Though he, his parents, he was raised in an Orthodox home and he's reformed by the time he gets to the U.S. And he and I were reading some Syriac together over lunch. We went to a deli. He ordered a, not just a ham, but a ham and cheese sandwich. So well, he's if you're mixing. Sin, might as well do it right. That's right. He's mixing <laughs> meat and dairy in addition to having ham. And I looked at him like, what are you doing? And he was a short little wiry guy with glasses. And he poked his finger in my face and he said, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> Moses never would have forbade ham if he'd tasted it the way my wife makes it. <laughs> I, I, I agree with him. <laughs> Thank you.